Good morning. Uh, so this is our uh, portal to Ancestral Heart Monastery, my other home. So, hi guys. <laughs> hi. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? Oh, you can't hear me so well? No? No? You can? Okay. All right, let me take a minute to get here. The reason I moved back, by the way, was not to be farther away from you all. In fact, it was nice I had a dream about you last night, Radha, so uh, it's nice to see you sitting here. This is a premonition, but rather because I didn't want to have my back to anybody. I wanted to be able to see um, those on the side. Okay. So I wanted to um, follow up on a conversation that the Shuso started last week. I was so inspired by his talk. Some of you might have heard it. Um, a koan about a rhino. And I was trying to find my inspiration for what I wanted to talk about today. So um, I went to Dogen, and actually the, the inspiration came out of a conversation I had with Victory about dragons, um, sharing the story about dragons. And um, I don't usually relate to dragons so much. They're not like my point of inspiration. <laughs> um, and yet, when Ian started to talk about the rhino, I felt like I wanted to have a conversation with him. So I wanted to bring a dragon to meet the rhino and see what might unfold. Um, and I think in a way that helps me because this kind of setting always feels a little odd to me. Um, it just something about me here separate from all of you. So I'd rather think of myself in a conversation with the Shuso and with all of you in a different kind of way. So, um, <clears throat> so there is a, a, a kind of famous Dogen um, story um, a teaching about true dragons. And this teaching comes out of a story uh, that was uh, popular in the um, Han Dynasty in China. So it's a story about um, a man who loves dragons. So some of you have heard this story. Yes, Ella's smiling. She's heard this story. Uh, so this is a story about a man who, ever since he was a little boy, he loved dragons. And what he would do is he'd collect dragons. He had all sorts of dragons, little plastic dragons, wood, well, maybe not plastic. <laughs> I'm already embellishing. Wooden dragons, uh, dragon paintings, dragon carvings, dragon... Uh, wall hangings, and um, he continued this practice. Um, even as a man, his whole house was full with dragons. So this um, one day, this uh, real dragon heard about this man and thought, wow, he probably would love a visit from me, and I'm going to go see him. And he, uh, he, he flies overhead. Now I'm thinking Game of Thrones, like flies overhead, and then he lands right outside the window of the, of the man's house. I'll say he, he lands at the door and he knocks on the door. <laughs> and the 
man opens the door and he is terrified. He can't handle it, closes the door, slams the door, and hides under the bed. So this is um, the story in which uh, Dogen refers to in his teaching. So this is, this is Dogen's teaching. It comes from Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. And Dogen says, <clears throat> love a true dragon instead of loving a carved one. However, know that both carved and true dragons have the ability to produce clouds and rain. Do not treasure or belittle what is far away, but be intimate with it. Do not treasure or belittle what is near, but be intimate with it. Do not make light of or a big deal of what you see with your eyes. Do not make light of or a big deal of what you hear with your ears. Rather, illuminate your eyes and ears. So this is a teaching that comes out of his um, piece called The Point of Zazen. So there's many, many teachings in this story, in this teaching right here. There's so much to unpack. I couldn't begin to unpack a lot of it, but I will try to unpack a little bit of it. <clears throat> and it kind of reminds me of the story of the rhino. Yes, the teacher says to the, you know, go get me my rhino fan. Is that right? And the, and the, and the student says, the jisha says, my, the rhino fan is broken. So he says, go get me the rhino fan, <laughs> right? So this uh, story really speaks to um, the surprises that are held in store for us in practice. Uh, I could say um, for myself, and I think so many who um, come to practice, that before we're practicing, we're kind of lost in our lives. We are um, carving out little dragons, getting through our day, attending to the various things just to survive. We, we make these little nests for ourselves. We have these activities that we're doing. We have these relationships that we're building. And we're trying to make ourselves comfortable and safe and secure. And many circumstances might happen in which all of a sudden something is blown through that. Maybe some part of reality shows up. It might be in a fierce way, like uh, for me through death. You know, uh, at 17, uh, my mother got a diagnosis of cancer and the next 10 years of my life, eight years of my life was, well, actually, it was five. It, she um, went through a tremendous illness and died. It could be many different kinds of things in which our reality confronts us, and the way that we thought we built this secure sense of ourselves and our world falls apart. For some of us, we feel that and learn that very young, based on who we are and how we're treated. But this um, reality, when it pops in, when it knocks on the door, sometimes just kind of uh, throws us off. And we begin to question everything that we built our lives on. 
It could also be a moment in which somebody comes forth and asks something of us that we, we really didn't want or think we could meet, but we really want to meet it. But we're kind of frozen, like, I can't meet that. But this is the moment that we cherish in practice. This is the moment of great possibility. It's like a portal. It's where we're living on this one level of life and then something breaks open and there's like a portal to a possibility of another way of experiencing reality. Uh, Martin Buber says, presence is not what is evanescence and passes, but what confronts us waiting and enduring. I love that quote because we think of you know, especially in practice, we talk about being present, you know, <laughs> as if it's this kind of lovely pool of water <laughs> that we can swim in and relax and enjoy. And often it's like, it is, it's a confrontation with experience, with reality that stirs us up. And I love, I love this also, this part that it says it's waiting and enduring, kind of like the dragon, you know, waiting, waiting for us to come and meet it. You know, it's here. It's calling to us, actually. So the question then becomes, <laughs> can we relax with this um, invitation? Or do we go running out of the room, hide under the bed, Disassociate, disassociate, right? That's one way. Uh, you know, somebody had said, uh, we have, it's so lovely, we have people coming and visiting the monastery now. They're just coming in locally. And somebody was talking about how they were practicing for years, but they realized they were mostly disassociating. And I was like, really? Um, too bad for you. <laughs> and I say that only jokingly because I also realize I still disassociate. I, 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 I really appreciated her uh, acknowledgement because there's many times I just can't meet what's happening in my body, what's happening in the room, what's happening in my heart. So we, I go back to being a carved, <laughs> a carved zazen student, you know, kind of zoning out. So. This is how we run out of the room. We, we might try to control more. And now I'm really going to double down on the controlling. Uh, we might analyze or blame or try to fix or control what's happening. And so we scramble for this certain kind of uh, carved ground that we can rest in where nothing moves. <laughs> but, you know, I think we also really want to meet that true dragon. We really want to meet life. It, 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 it's, it's, it's like we want to come home to what's alive, to what we actually are. So this kind of confrontation uh, with life is really the heart of our practice here. This is what we're doing. And I think, you know, uh, the rhino or the dragon will pursue us <laughs> relentlessly. So we might as well see if we can turn around and face it. So one of the things that uh, Dogen says, he says, Do, uh, 
However, know that there is, I have to put my glasses on. However, know that both carved and true dragons have the ability to produce clouds and rain. So he's not, um, he's not judging this, these carved dragons. He's actually recognizing that the carved dragons is a way of preparing for the true dragon. And this is what we do in Zazen. You know, we come to practice and we, um, I know I did, and I, I felt, I think maybe because of the early sense of loss and dis disorientation in my home, because of death visiting, that I craved something that felt reliable and secure and patterned and formed, you know? Um, even though I resisted it also at every turn. <laughs> so I had both this longing for some kind of ground. And um, I, I came to Zen practice and I started to feel something that felt somehow um, real and alive in a way that felt reliable. And I didn't even know why or what that was. So we do that, some of us, um, we, we start to take up practice, maybe even with some enthusiasm. We get our outfits together. <laughs> we learn the forms, we take up roles, we're chanting. And so in a way, we are opening up to these teachings, you know. Yes, I do want to free beings. I don't want to cause harm. I do want to address the violence in the world. This is a deep, true aspiration that, that stirs up. So in a way, we are invoking the dragon. <laughs> we don't know we are, but we are. We don't realize what we're invoking. So the dragon starts to hear us and be like, okay, <laughs> you are ready for me? So we sit down to Zazen, and we, we I think, or hope, you know, it's so sweet. People come in, they want peace. I want peace. And you sit down on the cushion, and what do you get? <laughs> you get pain. You get suffering. You get annoyance. You get judgment. You get resistance. You get heartbreak. You do. You do get some peace, too. You get to uh, sometimes have that ease. But um, what has been kept out of consciousness starts to say, okay, you're here, you want to meet me, I'm going to start showing you what has been um, not met fully yet. So we start to experience all kinds of stirrings, and some of us run out of the room and never come back. Some of us tiptoe back in, we sit, we we feel we, it's too much. We, we start to plan what we're going to make for dinner on the cushion or what goals we're going to um, accomplish for ourselves. So we move in and out. We go from um, tap, tipping toeing in and then moving out. We still prefer the carved dragon, a practice that confirms our sense of ourselves and the world. Only now it's going to be, you know, we're going to be a better carved dragon. We're going to be a Buddha. <laughs> we have no idea what that means. <laughs> it still <turns> out. <sighs> and then we still, so what happens is we still watch the ways we freeze to keep out what is so threatening. And it's understandable, you know. The sensitivity of opening up is to open up 
to all the various forms of pain of separation, the violence in our bodies, in our communities, the alienation we have felt, all our traumas, great and small. We really don't want to be heartbroken. We don't want to fail. We don't want to embarrass ourselves. We don't want to be filled with rage, which can happen. We don't want to have conflict. You know, we wanted this to be a nice conflict-free zone, maybe. No. And um, for me, I didn't really want to feel impermanence. I didn't really want to feel into uh, the experience of death, especially the one with my mom. So we gently, slowly put down the carved dragons, you know, the way we're trying to twist life into a form that is acceptable for us. And I think it's interesting choosing the idea about death. It, it started coming to me um, a week ago when I was finishing this um, training. And I was, um, it's a training in which we just open up and feel into kind of collective pain. And what came to me, um, I was sitting there and all of a sudden I felt a little something. And I was guided by these beautiful guides. There were three of them sitting there trying to just allow me to feel into what was actually alive for me. And it started off as a little pain in my chest. And then all of a sudden it was like a dragon and I couldn't breathe, you know, the, the, it was like a birthing process. <laughs> I know you all know this, right? Sit, And it's like I'm trying to shut the whole thing down and it's coming up and it's like I'm, I'm convulsing and my guides are like, just breathe, Laura, just breathe, it's okay, just breathe. And grief pours out of me. And then the amazing thing is something quiets down and I feel this connection to all the grief, not just my grief, all the grief. So um, today actually is Dia de Muertos, right? Day of the Dead. Uh, it's this beautiful um, tradition in Mexico and now other countries that dates back to in indigenous cultures. They say maybe thousands of years, but hundreds of years ago, um, to this Aztec festival, which is dedicated to the goddess Mikta um, Casawatil, Lady of the Dead. <laughs> Another portal, right? And it's like a beautiful acknowledged portal. Today, we have the um, boundaries between the living and the dead kind of opened up. And in this tradition, which is not a necessarily a somber tradition, but a celebratory tradition, uh, people can be intimate with their loved ones again. They can offer them food and dance and celebrate. So, you know, um, this is what we are trying to do. How do we open up a portal and start to dance with, our, with, with all of those things that are seen and unseen, start to listen and hear and feel them with us. 
What's it mean to be intimate with it? This is a word we use over and over again. What does it mean to be intimate? So Dogen says, um, Do not treasure or belittle what is far away, but be intimate with it. Do not treasure or belittle what is near, but be intimate with it. And even though I've been practicing for 20 years, I have to keep being reminded of, of, of the ways in which my mind um, either grasps like treasures too much my identity, my pain, my experience, my joy. If I treasure my loss, treasure all the deaths in my family, which sounds like an odd thing to do, but we can kind of like hold it up as some kind of um, thing that you have to keep, uh, even at the expense of life. If I do that, I'm trapped inside of it. I claim it as mine my death, my losses. I reify it as my identity. And then I'm unable to see the universality of impermanence. You know, as Kisakatami came to know, right? We are all subject to death. We're all subject to birth and death. It's not mine. Now, on the other side, if I belittle my loss, right, he says also, do not belittle what is, what is near or far away. And I think this is a big piece in practice that what we can do, more often than not, it's amazing, having met with so many people in so many ways, we want to belittle our own pain. You know, and we can use this universality of loss or even a hierarchy of, of, what, of what pain is legitimate and what pain isn't. And we can um, dishonor the particularity of our heartbreak, which is, needs to be honored as sacred. And we freeze it and um, don't allow ourselves to kind of fully walk through that portal. But as walking through that portal, we have to walk through the portal. And it could be different portals. I had to like, go back and feel yet again the grief. But when I did, when I do, when I meet that, then something opens. And then what happens is over time, strangely enough, you know, we're not masochistic. We just would rather, we really start to get celebratory, well, maybe not celebratory. We start to have a more relaxed, maybe even open attitude towards our dragons, towards those, those that, that kind of, uh, that contraction against life, you know? We were talking, for some of the monks, we were practicing um, chanting. Simple enough, just chant this. <laughs> And we go and we chant, you know, in front of a few people, in front of all of you, and boom, some profound pain arises. 
I know especially for me as a woman, as somebody who has been, as a working class woman growing up in an atmosphere in a household that says, you know, like quietness is, uh, is uh, the way you're a good girl. <laughs> you know, be a good girl. And who do you think you are speaking in four or five syllables? I mean, it really still catches me. I didn't realize how deeply my conditioning around um, class is for me. I speak to this all the time because it comes up every time I have to give a Dharma talk. So the combination for me of those two things mean that when I go to speak in a very loud, you know, very wholehearted, we always talk in Zazen about, and practice about being wholehearted. You have to wholeheartedly chant and don't hold back. So there we are, we're already like, oh, and then we're like, eat. <laughs> this little thing pops out. And all this pain underneath it. And this is what's amazing because we practice. Zen is so wonderful. It's like we don't, we want you to find that true dragon inside of you, you know? So we create these conditions where we um, can step towards meeting that, meeting that the enormity of, of our energy of life. And the enormity of all of those, those beings that are supporting us. So uh, yesterday, <laughs> it happens, you know, I had again one of those, everybody who knows me is like, who's close by is like, oh, Laura has to do a talk. I'm not going to ask anything <laughs> It's like everybody go away. <laughs> I'm in my struggle now, you know. And um, and just like Ian, you know, you talked last week about like how this teaching opened up and you connected with it. Like it was like you were dropped into this teaching, you know, where no doubt arose. You can feel it and see it and be it. This this suchness. And then the portal closes. You know, this is what happens for me. It opened this. It opened yesterday morning. I was really um, was with the dead, and I was with, I was with connection, and I was feeling. I'm like, okay, I'm here. I can speak from this place. <laughs> then in the afternoon, it's all gone. I'm like, where? It, it's dead. I'm back in this reality. I can't say anything. And what happened was um, all of that. Uh, that fear came up again. I'm separate over here. I've got nothing to say. All the ideas I have there are really boring to me at this point, but they, they, they grab me nonetheless. And I thought to myself, I don't want to teach on this stupid thing about dragons. <laughs> Let me find something juicier, you know? Let me talk about water. That's my favorite. Talk about water. Um, <clears throat> so I went to bed last night, very tired. Um, and. And Kosin was so sweet. He, he said to me, he's like, what's really alive for you, Laura? Just name it. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> Poor guy, he tried when he went home. He just couldn't take it anymore. In the middle of the night, you know, I fell asleep. I had these lovely dreams. And then I, I, was, half as, I was half awake this morning. It's very sweet, and this happens to me every time. All of a sudden, I kept saying, what is the true dragon? What is the true dragon? 
what is this true dragon? <clears throat> and I realized, you know, I went back to the dragon story, and I thought about that dragon. And he wasn't a fierce, mean old dragon, you know? He was very sweet. He was very loving. He wanted just to connect. You know, he was in this ground. He was offering this ground of connection. And, you know, he just tapped at the door, friendly, happy, ready for connection. And, um, and so as soon as my body, you know, when you're half asleep, it's not intellectual, thank goodness. You know, my body could feel that really this was love, you know, the true dragon, in my words, what love. The true dragon is love. And a kind of love that says, I want you to be there. I want you to meet me. You know, and maybe sometimes even love out of compassion for the one who's too terrified kind of backs off a little bit, you know. <laughs> this happens to me, and I do it to other people. It's like, no, too much love. <laughs> Back off. <laughs> I can't take it all right now. It's too enormous. And this is what happens in practice, too. It's almost as if we can um, begin to trust our connections to each other, you know? And that what feels like a threatening, separate world is now a world of, um, of interdependence, profound, mysterious connections of support. And then I was thinking, you know, and then I woke up, and um, Kiku was like, what are you going to teach on today <laughs> from, the, from the monastery? I'm, she's not supposed to be on text, but she was. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Kiku. She was like, she was like good morning. We're going to listen to you. And um, then she said, we're here with you. And then Kristen says, what do you want for breakfast, Laura? And then, because I waited till the last minute, I had to print out my talk during Zazen. So I brought the ever-loyal Shuso in to help me print. And we couldn't print. It was another dragon to wrestle, no? And Ian is like, oh! <laughs> the dragon rhino became the printer, you know? And we're wrestling it, and the pages aren't lining up. and. I'm not going to have my talk, and, and Ian's like insistent. So this is like the nearness of that, right? It's not so far away. It's very near. It's very right here. And sometimes when we read these teachings, they feel so far away. And if we can stay with the nearness of them, how they show up in your room in the middle of the night when you're half asleep, or in the form of a shoe so wrestling a dragon rhino <laughs> printer, um, we can uh, begin to put down our cog dragons and let ourselves swim and play and enter 
into something else. So I wanted to um, just say one more thing because uh, this is the heart. You know, what happens is over time, I think we start to rely on this, on this, this field. We can feel it. It's such, we call it suchness, right? That there's, even in the midst of the pain, we talked about this in the class with she and I and she and on, about even in the midst of tremendous pain and tragedy and heartbreak, there is this glistening something. That these two things are not separate. And that, in fact, even the love and the connection and the tenderness gets even more illuminated when we can open up to the mystery of life and death. And um, so at the monastery, uh, every day, the highlight of our day for all the monks, it seems to me, is study. We have an hour and we sit down with our cup of tea and we study. And I'd love for us to do this here when we can. And we put, we open up whatever Dharma book we want. And I, I decided this fall I was going to study emptiness. And again, I wanted to enter into the teaching a little more deeply. I wanted to find out what this was about. So I started uh, reading the sutra on the perfection of wisdom, the Prajnaparamita Sutra. And we chant a tiny little bit of it every day, you know, homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. So this book is like the most devotional book, uh, devotional teachings. And when we think of emptiness sometimes, I think we think of something, we can mistake it as an emptying out where there's nothing left. And really this uh, teaching of Prajnaparamita, of, of the perfection of wisdom, is a teaching about the insubstantiality of everything, that nothing has solidity to it. And that's terrifying, I think, for uh, us who want to think of ourselves as carved dragons. But the magic of it all is, is that when we can calmly open up to this teaching, what arises out of this is full inclusion of everything. That it's full of love, it's full of connection. It's, there's, no, um, there's no place that it can't travel and meet you with, um, Full fullness. So I, I want to read you uh, just a, a, a little paragraph that, uh, that speaks to this kind of um, effervescence and um, intensity of the intensity of, of the presence of love. It's in this teaching, one of the paragraphs. Awakened beings swim in the sense of limitless ease, freedom, and delight generated by perfection wisdom. They are imbued with a tender love that regards all conscious beings in the universe without exception as their beloved parents or cherished children. Such is the ecstatic, goalless pilgrimage of the bodhisattvas. They live in communion with and in service of countless beings who even closer than their parents and children are essentially their own intimate consciousness. So if we can keep um, evoking the courage and the tenacity and the patience and the skillfulness to move into all of those places, 
that you said are broken or hurt or closed, this is what is the potentiality of what will meet you, what we realize who we are. And then the true dragon, which looks so fierce and annihilating, is actually this very lovely, playful, <laughs> buoyant, easeful connection that we can rest in and use as a refuge to help us um, keep meeting what is so hard to meet. So, so thank you, Shuso, for opening the conversation. And um, I just encourage you to kind of keep an ear and an eye and a nose out for that true dragon as it might present itself in your life. Again, it could just be a little bit of a contraction in your chest, uh, a little bit of something that starts to stir up energetically for you. It could be somebody asking you to start to look at a part of your conditioning that is harming them. You know, all of these are calls. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.